For the rest of us, please would you turn in the Bible, uh, in the pew or the one you brought with you, to Psalm 2. Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. And when you found Psalm 2, would you stand in honor of the sufficient, inerrant, inspired word of our living God? Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and we're going to read through the whole thing together. We sang most of it together, but we're going, to, we're going to read it through as well. And I remind you, as we read this, it's right like hearing the voice of our living God. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we come together as your people, Father, that you would anoint us now with your Holy Spirit to understand your word in our minds, to believe what it's saying in our hearts, and for it to be effective and lived out in our lives. Father, may we come this morning fearing you. May we tremble at how awesome and holy you are. And Father, may we take refuge in you. May we draw so close to you that we may now kiss the sun, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is a description of Aslan the Lion, who is a representation in the Chronicles of Narnia of Christ. And as the children are asking about who Aslan is, one of them asks, is he safe? And the beaver, the character of the beaver replies... Is he safe? No, he is not safe, but he is good. And at the essence of that is understanding what is the theme that runs through this psalm this morning, which is to know that we need to fear God, even though he loves us, even though he calls us to take refuge in him, and even though he is our Lord and our Savior. We need to understand the the vital premise of, of Scripture that God is holy, that he is other, that he is set apart from us. And that he is to be greatly feared. And that the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs say, is to fear God. But I'm conscious as I say that, and I'm conscious as I prepared the passage this morning, of a bumper sticker that I once saw uh, that was talking about church. And it said this, if I wanted to be made to to, to feel guilty, I would call my mother. And I don't want us, as we get into this psalm, to to be left with an absolute huge burden of guilt. I I definitely don't want that to come across as as just human flesh of words that I'm saying as we get into this psalm. 
I want the Holy Spirit to do the work of conviction as we think about asking, do we truly and honestly fear God? Do we truly and honestly see that fear of God being worked in our lives? I don't want in the flesh us to be, to be burdened by the sense of words that come out of my mouth this morning. I want us to, to engage with the Spirit and with the Word of God and us to ask ourselves, God, where am I with you? Where am I with this issue of fearing you? Not so that we would be left with a burden of guilt or, or a burden of being made to feel condemned by the humanness of the flesh, but so that we may kiss the Son. So that we may become so intimate with God and with the Holy Trinity that we would be blessed because we take refuge in Him. As I was preparing this, uh, this psalm, I was looking back over my notes of, of looking and studying Psalm 2. And I, and I found there a, 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 a missionary uh, who went over to India. And I love it when God does that. I don't take it as any sense of coincidence when I'm preparing something and it fits directly into the pattern of where we are in our lives or, or in my life personally. And as I thought about Todd going over to India and then I read about a commentator who, who has talked about this uh, psalm, he said about how when he was over in India, he was preaching there and there were locals were handing out leaflets with his name on it and it said that, that that evening the massage for the village would come from this pastor. And it's so easy to see how things can get lost in translation in different cultures that it said rather than message, it said massage. And I'm, I'm praying for Brother Todd that as he goes over into another country, into another culture, that as he shares the gospel, it's not lost in translation. That people, because of the Spirit of God being at work like it did at Pentecost, directs Todd's words to being used to penetrate the hearts and minds of those who are there with the gospel. See, so often for us, we can lose things in translation. And the danger for us this morning is that we can lose in translation this understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. And rather than it being a transformational, radical changing of our lives to us serving God... It becomes instead this kind of burden of weight that's laid upon our shoulders that, that, that cripples us in living for God. I, I want us to understand that when we get into this passage that we see this message coming through. I, I want us as I challenge us to think about how perhaps we don't fear the Lord. That that's not a case of me just hitting us with a stick. But it's us getting deeper into the word of God to be challenged to live for God in the way that he calls us to. You see, too often we are too familiar with God. And what I mean by that is we treat the Father in heaven as though he is our equal or worse, as if he is our servant to answer and obey our request that we give to him in prayer. See, we have lost in translation somewhere that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of being in touch with reality, which is what wisdom is, is to fear the Lord. The Lord being Yahweh, the Lord being the God of the whole Bible. Somehow the Christian culture that you and I are a part of today in the West has lost any sense of what it means to fear the Lord. To view Him as high, to view Him as almighty, to view Him who's the one who has the power just with a, a breath and the thought to destroy us at any second because we are so unholy and unrighteous and so different from Him. So as we prepare ourselves for the Christmas season, I wanted us to get into the Psalms both for the season of Advent, uh, as well as the, the true story of Christmas. You see, Advent is the time when we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's the time when we think about both him coming as a baby that was laid in a manger, being meek and mild. But Advent is also the time of year when we think about the Lord returning as the judge and the king. And I want us as we prepare for Christmas to to get into the Psalms and see both these things going on. Pointing forward to God, Emmanuel, God becoming flesh that we think about at Christmas. But also having the right fear of God in our minds that Jesus is going to return again as the Lord and King and he will judge. So we must remember that balance of scripture. That Jesus Christ was that meek and mild baby laid in a manger. But he is also a king with an iron rod that can smash you and me like pottery. And he is just in his judgment when he does that. Because whilst, yes, Jesus became flesh, he clothed himself and became a baby. He is, he is now and forever will be God's chosen king to be feared. So what I I thought about when I was thinking about the title for this series, many people talk about um, kind of spending Christmas in faraway places like Hawaii and uh, and luxurious places like that. For us with our new, I I want us to, to go away and I want us to spend Christmas in the Psalms. It almost sounds exotic, like palms or something, doesn't it? But we're going to spend Christmas in the Psalms as we build up over Advent and as we get to to our Christmas Eve service. I wonder if you want to join me in that journey of, of understanding what it means to know this King Jesus, this one who became Emmanuel, and this one who will return as the judge of the whole world. Well, as we get into the Psalms, we have to get into our mind that as we read these Psalms, as we understand these Psalms, that they are words being spoken to God while still being inspired by God. Let me say that again. These are words that are spoken to God whilst at the same time being inspired by God. Just as much as when some people have translations of the Bible that are in red, which are supposed to be just Jesus' words, and therefore we equate them as being kind of slightly higher as being God's words. I'm dying for the day when somebody releases a Bible that's all in red, so we understand that the whole of the Bible is in God's, is God's Word. But here we've got to understand that God's words are, are being spoken to God by the psalmist. And here in Psalm 2, it gets even better than that, because God gives his own words to the, uh, to the one who is writing it, which is David, and it's God's words being given back to God in a conversation with him being involved. And so when we think about the Psalms, we need to understand that they're teaching us the way to sing or to pray back to God. The Psalms are a set of, uh, of, of, of prayers or songs that God has given us so that we might take them back to him and learn how to pray to him, how to sing to him, how to, to praise and adore God. And God starts the conversation by creation and he's given us his word, but he always invites us to respond And that's an incredible thought to think that the God of creation invites us to respond. And the reason we get to do that, the reason you and I are able to speak to God is because when we trust in the blood of the Lamb, trust in Jesus Christ, we are then able to boldly enter into his throne room and speak to him in prayer, in songs. And that's what Psalms are so amazing for. They're the manual to learn how to speak to God. So if you struggle in prayer like I do, If you struggle to get yourself in the right frame of mind to sing praises to God when we come together in church, then come with me and let's dig into the Psalms because it's great medicine for you and I to learn how to pray. It's great medicine for you and I to learn how to sing to God, not just corporately here when we come in harmony to focus on the glory of God as we sing together, but also learning to sing when we're with our families or when we're alone. 
Don't be freaked out by singing when you're on your own. It's a good thing to do. The psalmist teaches to do it. It helps nurture our spirit to focus on God. And there are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. And each of them are broken down to, to five books or five sections, like the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And each of those books either finishes with a benediction or a doxology to the praise of God. And they take us through every possible human emotion or response of real life. The Psalms are incredibly gritty. They're not just wishful thinking fairy tales, but they're true gritty responses from how life treats us about how we're then to speak or sing back to God. And they can speak of our lives and they can speak for us in words when our own words run out. See, they are written as a form of poetry or song to help us remember the basic principle of fearing God and to give our life to him, to give our life as a praise offering to him, to focus our hearts and our minds on giving God glory. And so it's amazing that what happens is, is that when we think about what we sing or what we, we do in our prayers, whatever a church does when it comes to singing, whatever a church does when it comes to pray, then becomes the truths that, that inevitably work out and become what the church is like. So we need to focus our passion on God and nothing else. So that when we sing, it's because we're singing to the glory of God. And when we pray, we pray to the glory of God. And we need to learn to do that through what the Psalms are doing. The Psalms, like any good book or any good gospel singing, are designed to get us to respond. The Psalms have a, in them intentionality in being emotive in their language. To move our mind to the truth of what God is, as well as to move our heart to respond to God. And so as we go through this, as we think about the fear of the Lord in here, we need to, to see the emotive language that's trying to get our attention about the truth about God. Not so that we would be burdened under some sense of fleshly guilt, but so that the Spirit would raise us up to soar when we think about the Son calling us to kiss Him and us to be blessed when we take refuge in Him. So as we go through, I'm going to break this psalm down with, with different questions and pauses that the psalm has so that we might get into that evoking language and therefore we might respond. And the first thing that we have in this psalm is God asking the question, why? Have a look at verses uh, 1 to 3 with me. See, the psalm opens up with a picture of foolishness and a simple question of God asking why. Why do the nations plot against me? Why do they, they come together in council of kings? Why do they do these things? Why do they try and raise up against the anointed one? Why do they try to say that they can burst the bonds apart and cast themselves away from the cords? In other words, why do they think they can separate themselves from the God of the universe? Why do they think they can separate themselves from me? See, God is exploiting the foolishness of the kings. And he's getting into understanding why that is so foolish. He needs them to understand that what they need to do is to surrender. To lay down their arms. To stop fighting against God. To stop fighting against the godness of God. See, he is going to speak and when he speaks, their whole world is going to crumble down around them. It's going to be like somebody crushing a piece of pottery. And God is stopping and he's saying, stop your plotting. Stop recognizing and thinking that you are powerful and more powerful than me. Stop thinking that you can separate yourself from me. Because there is no one else apart from God. God is the only God. There is no one else like him. 
And when we look at this, this, these phrases of what's here, we understand that what it's talking about, about those kings and those rulers who are, who are plotting, is that in the New Testament, it unfolds this psalm for us and shows us that it's talking about not just the kings in David's day who are trying to separate themselves away from the God of Israel and trying to destroy the chosen people of Israel. But in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, verses 26 to 31, it shows us that this psalm ultimately was talking about Jesus and about the rulers of King Herod and about Pontius Pilate and their plot to kill Jesus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4 to see that with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 26 to, to 31. Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 26 to, to 31. Let me read up from verse uh, 25, actually. Acts chapter 4. Let me hear the rustling of the, the leaves of the Bible. That's good for a preacher to hear, to know that you're checking out what I'm saying from the Word of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David... The one who wrote Psalm 2, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, so it had a greater purpose. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's quoting from Psalm 2, but listen to the explanation. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Here's the king and the rulers. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see what Psalm 2 is getting at? It's pointing forwards to the foolishness of those who don't fear King Jesus. It's pointing to the foolishness of King Herod and Pontius Pilate and those who plotted against killing Jesus, the Son of God. And so still today, this theme of God asking why is applicable to us today. Because people still plot today in vain about denying that Jesus is king. And people still today stand against him. They may not be kings taking up arms, but in in the church in the West and in the culture of the West outside of the church, the issue of fearing God and fearing his King Jesus is rampant. See, we don't want to fear God anymore in the West. Even within the church, the church does not want to wrestle with what it means to fear the Lord, to fear God's King, to go against his anointed one. We don't spend time contemplating, asking the question, Am I plotting against the king? Am I fearing the Lord? Because what we want to be is we want to be comfortable. We want to be left alone. We don't want anybody coming and telling us that we're not fearing the Lord. We don't want the word of God to open up to those passages that we don't like to look at because they make us feel uncomfortable. See, we come together and we're just like Israel. Uh, we, we, we murmur and we squirm and we move away from worshipping God and fearing Him. And what happens is we're left with something that isn't worship at all. Because if instead of fearing the living God who calls us to come and know Him, what we do is we patronize God by saying we live for Him because we go to church on Sunday. Or because we go to church on another day. Or because we're involved in church programs. But never putting in our lives a fear of the Lord's. Never saying, God, my life is your, I put it on the line. And God, would you have mercy so that you may use me for your glory. 
that language, those actions are very rarely seen in the church in the West anymore. We keep saying tomorrow I'll talk to somebody about Jesus. Or tomorrow I'll make sure that I pray in the way that the Bible tells me to pray. Or tomorrow I will bring my affections, bring my life, bring my mind, my heart, my body, my soul to giving time to God so that I may passionately live for him. But in the West, we don't fear God like that. We don't think like that. Because we've wanted to break the bonds with God and we pushed him so far away so that we may be comfortable. That's the way we've made it in church in the West. That's the way some of us make it here in this church. We don't want to be bothered by fearing the Lord and what that means and the implication of God's word. We've made it that way because we don't want to count the cost of what it means to be a Christian. And we've done that in the history of the church when we've told people what it means to be a Christian. See, Jesus never said, indulge yourself, take up your house shoes and sit comfortably on your pew. Jesus said in the gospel, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the only way that those words are ever going to become true in your life and mine is if there is this fear that works through us that we need to obey his words. We need to understand if we're going to call someone to Jesus, then they need to be prepared to do a whole lot more than just raise their hand, close their eyes and say they've said a prayer. When we call people to, to being Christians, they need to know that it's more than just raising their hand in the air. It's calling them to lay down their life for the King Jesus. Do you get that Fifth Avenue? Do you get that Fifth Avenue? It means laying down your life. We've made Christianity such a soft, comfortable option that even in coming to Christ, we've not caused it to be a thing of wrestling with, is this what God is saying? Is what the word of God says to be true? Because if it is, my life needs to look radically different from everything else around me and what it is in my own life right now. See, that's the radical life that Jesus calls us to. But the church in the West has made it soft. And the essence of why the church in the West has made it soft is because we don't fear the Lord anymore. We open the Bible and maybe we read it. But we don't sit there with the Bible and we don't wrestle with it. We don't push into God and say, God, meet me here. Meet me here so that I might be like Isaiah who falls down flat and says, God, have mercy on me. Cleanse me from my sin. We don't memorize the Bible like we, well, like we should do so that we meditate on it as we go through our day and say, Holy Spirit, work in my flesh so that I may live for your spirit and not for the desires of my own body. See, when we take memory verses, most of us have a picture in our minds of, of some nice picture of a calendar that hangs on our kitchen wall of, of pictures of, uh, of flowers in a field and it's saying something like, be still and know that I am God's. That is not the essence of what that psalm is saying. That psalm is saying, be still from all your busyness and know that I can destroy you. It's not a picture of a field. It should be a picture of a graveyard of dead bodies. Because if you don't be still and know that God is God, this is what's coming to you. So when we read our Bibles, we're only seeing what we want it to be for a comfort to us. We're only seeing what it says when it says something for us. And when it comes to Psalms like Psalm 2, We hate to read it and see what it says against us. Some of us need, when we open up the Bible, to ask the question, God, what is this saying, not for me, but against me? Holy Spirit, show me, like the mirror that James talks about, where I need to change. See, we think because we have science and technology, 
because we have stores all around us that are full of food, because the day has not yet come when we've gone into a restaurant and and the waiter has come up to us and said, sorry, I can't serve you anything today because there's a massive famine. None of us, I don't think, in here ever experienced that day where we are dependent day by day to fear the Lord so that we might live to get to the next day. None of us have had to live with such fear of the Lord so that when we say grace, it's not a quick, just passive thing where we move on to get to our dinner and ease our conscience. It's because we are genuinely grateful that God in his sovereignty has provided for us the food on our table. And the reason that's happened is because we have stopped living our lives Fearing the Lord. We have stopped fearing the Lord. We cast him off like he's a burden. And what's happened is in the churches across the West is that we are filled with, with people who are not actually saved because they are no different from the drunk at the bar. The only difference between that pagan and the pagan in the pew is the one in the bar has a loose tongue and the one in the pew has learned to control their tongue and use Christian language. We've made church such a comfortable place because we do not fear the word that we've so much become like the world that the world does not know the difference anymore. It does not see the beauty of Jesus Christ. It does not uh, ask the question, what do I need to be saved from? Because it doesn't see it and us. We hide away from sinners because they make us uncomfortable. We forsake God and his commandments about going out into the world and sharing the gospel with those sinners And we stay here hoping that we don't get challenged about what we are doing with our time and with our talents and with our treasures. And I'm here saying, what are we doing, Fifth Avenue? Are we like those other churches? Are we thinking that God is in heaven and he doesn't see what we are like in our hearts? That he doesn't see that we don't fear him? That he doesn't see that we don't obey his commandments to go and share the gospel? That he doesn't see that we read the word like he calls us to read the word? Do we think that God doesn't see that, that we don't pray in the way that the word tells us to pray? Do we think that? Because most of us are living like that. And what does God uh, do when he, he thinks that we can get away with that? When we think we can just be passive and not fear him and mistreat him? What does he do? Have a look with me at verse 4. Do you see what he does? The God in heaven laughs. He laughs. I don't know if you've ever contemplated that, but when I read that this week, I was kind of sitting there thinking, I wonder what the laugh of God is like. I wonder what it is like. I think it might be more terrifying than I think it might be uh, amusing. Because if you look at the context in which it comes, it talks about the Lord holding those who do not fear him, who do not recognize him in derision. It's that derision of uh, him not being pleased with the, the actions of these people, of him not being pleased with what's going on. And the reason God laughs is when people try to plot in vain against him, it's because no one can move the hand of God in a different direction. No one can ever challenge God. Turn with me again to, to, to Acts chapter 4 to, to see that again. Did you notice the language in Acts chapter 4? I wanted to dwell on this again and go back there. Because did you see the the, the words that that were there when it talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate plotting against him and people trying to, to go against God? And see what it says there. To do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. See, Pontius Pilate and Herod and all those who were plotting to kill Jesus thought that they had won the day. 
thought that they had achieved their aims. But behind it all, God was there confident that his hand was not being moved. That when Jesus was dying on the cross, this was not the greatest of all tragedies, but the greatest of all victories when he died on the cross. That this was God's plan. And we know that's true because of how it then fits in with this psalm. Because what God is saying is, you may try and plot against me, but you are foolish. I laugh at you trying to plot against me. You cannot stop me as creator. You cannot stop me as the sovereign ruler over everything that happens. You can't even do your plotting against me because I am the one who gives you breath to be able to plot against me in the first place. And so how does God respond as he laughs and as he looks on at their derision? He tells them and he tells us that he will speak in his wrath. And that is part of what the Bible does. Part of what the Bible does is God speaking to us in his wrath. And it should be terrifying to us. It should be terrifying when we open the Bible and we see God's fury in what he says. And this is how he describes that of what he's saying to us. He talks of my king, my holy hill, and my son. He's taking possession of all three of those things and saying they are mine. There is nothing in all of creation that God cannot say they are mine. All of this is mine. But he's particularly going to show his derision to us through his king being set on his hill because it is his son who is going to place there. To the enemy of God, these words should be terrifying. He's saying, all you earthly king who've tried to plot your plans against me, all you earthly king who have tried to to turn and go your own way, now I'm going to show you it's my turn. Now I'm going to show you who is really in charge. And how he does that is in verses 7 to 9. God is going to show to us his own king. He does that in two ways. In Advent, we see that in God becoming flesh and us in all of human history who become saved recognize Jesus as king. But there is also in verses 7 to 9, the end of when Jesus will return again as the king who comes with an iron rod. See, verse 7 is amazing when you study it. Have a look at verse 7 with me. See, there is a conversation going on here between the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the name, the personal name of God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, and his son. And his son, do you notice, who will be the inheritor of all the nations? The one who will be given all of the lands to the ends of the earth. They will be his possessions. See, when you read the New Testament, it becomes obvious that this is talking about Jesus, the son. And that he is the one who will inherit all the nations. In other words, this psalm, this bit of the psalm is a conversation between Jesus, God the Father, and us the reader. That is amazing. The Lord said to me, the me is Jesus ultimately in this psalm. The me is Jesus in this psalm ultimately. And we read that. And when it talks about this thing of today I have begotten you, again the New Testament explains that for us in Acts 13. That today is the day of resurrection. The day when Jesus, as king, smashed through death and rose victorious. To show how vain it is for the earthly kings to plot against him, God is saying, my king, even death cannot hold him. My king, even sin cannot hold him. My king is greater than all of creation. My king is the one who I'm going to give as an inheritance, the nations. My king is the one who is going to own the whole earth. And that is amazing when we think about that. 
It shows us how foolish and why God laughs at the kings and rulers in verses 1 to 3. See, their foolishness of what they have done is not to fear God and try to live out their safe lives. But what they have done is that they have missed the point of God through Jesus Christ, who's going to use his church to make the nations his inheritance. As we read these verses, uh, uh, verse 7 and 8, it's hard for me not to go off and talk about the Great Commission and talk about what we want to do as a church. But verse 8 is a Great Commission verse in the Old Testament. It's talking about how Jesus, through the gospel and through you and me, because we fear God, because we proclaim the gospel, are on the winning team because Jesus is our king. And we are part of God making, as Jesus' inheritance, the nations. Because the nations are those who confess Jesus as Lord. The nations are all the ethnicities that will be there on the last day before the throne of God from every tribe, tongue, nature and language singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we are part of this when we fear God and we make Jesus our king. And so it's great that God shows to us who his king is. That this is Jesus. This is Jesus expanding and showing us that as the gospel goes forth from places like Rome, Georgia to northeast India, that it's showing us that it's fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus being king. And Jesus tells us that the day when he will return with his rod of iron is the day when the gospel has gone out to all these nations. When every ethnos has heard the word of God. So if only we would just keep pushing deeper with this. If only we would push deeper in our own lives of understanding that this is us. That we are part of verse 8 of what's going on here. That we would push deeper into our relationship with God because we fear him. And therefore we would then proclaim his gospel. See the... The, the, the thing to understand when you look at this is because this is God's king and because this is the action of what will happen for God's king. When we trust in him, when we fear in him, we understand that on our side is his power to keep us, is his power to protect us, is his power to hold us for all eternity in our life sharing faith that he gives us so that we are safe ultimately for all of eternity. See, the irony is the more we try to live a safe life, the more we try to stop doing of sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors here in Rome, Georgia, the more we stop trying to fear God, the more we try and, and stop living lives that maybe make us uncomfortable when we think about how God calls us to live, how he calls us to pray, how he calls us to respond to his word. The irony is when we do that, when we move more to comfort and more to safety, what we're actually doing is moving ourselves to a place of greater and greater danger. Do you see that? As we move to comfort, as we move to safety, we are moving away from God. And ironically, we are therefore putting ourselves, eternally speaking, in more and more danger because we're setting ourselves up to say, Jesus is not my king. Therefore, I'm an enemy of God because I don't fear him. And therefore, what's coming my way is what verse 9 talks about. The consequences of setting ourselves up as enemies of God is God points to the advent of when Jesus will enter into the world, into human history once again for the second advent. And when he does that, he will come with a rod of iron. And King Jesus, uh, he will hold up his hands and he will smash down into pieces like a potter smashes a vessel. Those who have plotted against him, those who have not feared him, those who have denied Jesus as being king. Now, here's the point when I was preparing that, 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 that bumper sticker of, if I wanted to feel guilty, I'd call my mother. This was gripping me at this point. 
But I want us to stop and understand that the Bible is sometimes incredibly brutal with how it describes God and his character and his nature. God is sometimes incredibly brutal in the actions that he commands that affect humanity. Think about this for a second. When Noah was called to build the ark, and when his family and when, his friend, uh, 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 when the animals were on there, it was not some kind of nice petting zoo that floats across the seas very gently. We have this false image of Noah and the ark. Think about what God says and what God does in commissioning that action. For at least 40 days, if not for a lot, lot longer, Noah and his family would have experienced seeing men, women, children drowning to death before their very eyes. That is an uncomfortable piece of scripture to wrestle with, that God commanded that, God allowed that, God was sovereign over that. We can't just take the nice bits of the Bible and refuse the other bits of the Bible, because if we do, we will not fear God. Or think about the Passover night in Egypt, when God said to the Israelites, paint the blood of the lamb over your doorpost to save your firstborn son. And then when you read that in Exodus, you hear the graphic description as as the angel of death flies over the city. There were great cries, including Pharaoh's uh, household because his son had died. God is a God at that point who has commanded the killing of firstborn sons. We need to look at this verse, verse 9, and see the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the authority of God in being able to smash us like pieces of pottery. We need to see this and understand this. We need to be made to feel uncomfortable by this, by the work of the Spirit and not by the flesh of my words, because we need to understand it will cause us to fear Him and fear Him rightly. I'm not trying to be sensational when I mention these things. They are things that are in the Bible. There are times in the Bible when God tells his prophets to go with a sword and slash whole families to pieces. Men, women, and children. God commands these things. Because he is other, he is holy, and he is to be feared. See, for so many of us, God is too friendly to us in our image. We treat him, as some have said, as almighty. He's our best buddy. Rather than seeing him uh, as almighty as powerful, as holy, to be feared. See, the Bible tells us that God has the right to do these things like Noah and the ark and the flood. God has the right to do Passover. God has the right to cut people down with a sword by his prophets because he is the potter and we are the clay. When we get that concept in our minds, the concept that Romans 9 expands on, when we understand that, when we fear him, when we understand that his son, King Jesus, has an iron rod in his hand and he has the ability to smash it down upon us because he is holy and we are not, then our lives will be transformed. Then we will see the evoking of what Psalm 2 tries to get us to do. And as we get into the application, it's all there in verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12. It's all about coming and knowing God. See, ironically, when we fear God, when we see him as this God who is able to be wrathful, who is able to be destructive, it's then we see the, the, the beauty of his love as well. It's then we are humbled by his fear, by fearing, sorry, it's then we are humbled because we fear him and we realize that he's not against us before, but for us when we humble ourselves like this. See, this psalm is motivating us and it's challenging us in our affections to ask, are we wanting to serve the son 
Are we wanting to be close to the sun? Close enough to the sun that we want to kiss him. It's the image of closeness. Rather than fleeing from him or trying to unbind him from us like the kings were, it's saying, come to King Jesus. Draw close to King Jesus. So close that you are humbly face down before him and kissing his feet, being under his authority, not our own. It's encouraging those who think that they are strong enough uh, uh, to, to, to see that they are weak. It's encouraging those who think they are kings or rulers to say, you are not. You are under rule of my king. You are under the rule of King Jesus. That even the most mighty and most strong and most powerful of people need to say, I am weak. I am weak. It's encouraging them and us to abandon the idea of plotting against the true and living God. It's encouraging them and us to be part of God's chosen people, to be part of God's people and admit our weakness and then see God's love in giving to us his son, in giving to us refuge in him. That when we take refuge in his son, King Jesus, when we trust in him, we are safe from his own rod of iron. We are safe from his own act of judgment that we deserve. So the question is, as we look at this, what are we going to do? Are we going to be wise? Are we going to be warned? Or are we going to continue to say, I am king and I will rule this earth? See, the application of verse 11 and 12 is to say, no. Be wise, be in touch with reality and serve the Lord with fear. Think about that for a moment. When you do things for God or for the church, which is the same thing, are you doing it with fear? Are you doing it because you fear the Lord? In the same way that you fear the ocean and you don't want it to drown you. In the same way that you fear fire and you don't want it to burn you. God is a good thing. It is something that we can do with rejoicing. When we look at that, when we look at that, that verse, verse 11, which is the key to understanding this whole psalm, it seems when we first read it to be a contradiction. How can we both fear and rejoice with trembling? Uh, and the only way I can think about having to, to describe this to you is, it, it, it's last year when I went home to see my great-grandmother. And I, I went and knocked on her door and it was a surprise to her. And she trembled with joy. She trembled with joy because in her mind, she didn't know when she was going to see me again. There was that fear of what, what is going to happen in the next stage. And when I was there, she trembled with joy and with fear because then she embraced that moment and said, I want to hold on to this moment and I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose this moment. And that's the same thing here with us. What it means is when we draw close to Jesus, when we fear him, when we humble him, when we say that we are weak, we're exposing ourselves. Anytime a human being, no matter what it is they're doing, when they say that they are weak, when they expose their weakness, there is a sense of fear that comes along with that of what's going to happen next. But as we do that with God, it then comes with a trembling of rejoicing. We kiss the son because we don't want his anger. We don't want to perish we don't want his wrath, which can be so quickly kindled and burn into a fire to consume us, but rather we want to be blessed. We want to be blessed because we've recognized Jesus as king. We've recognized that this is God the Father's king, who he has said on his hill, who he has declared to be his son. We want that and we want to hold on to that. And when we get into fearing the Lord like that, what happens is it brings us joy because it brings us the security of the gospel. 
It brings us safety in knowing that we are safe for all eternity because we trust in Jesus Christ. And it therefore then causes us to serve him with fear and do what we are made to do. We were made to rejoice, to celebrate God's glory. We were made to serve him in spreading the gospel. We were made to serve him in giving our lives as an offering to him. We were made to serve him with digging our lives into the Bible and reading what it says and then doing what it says. We need to go out today and we need to ask the question, what is going to happen in my response to God's word today? Am I going to wrestle with it? Am I going to wrestle with, do I fear the Lord? Am I going to wrestle with where my life is and does it reflect a life that is fearing the Lord? Or am I going to ignore it? Am I going to want to be comfortable? Am I just going to want to get my place in the restaurant, sit down and talk about last night's football game? Am I just going to want to move on with the understanding of what it really means for my life to fear the Lord and to serve Him? Or am I going to wrestle with this? Am I going to tremble with God? Am I going to ask the question, even though this passage is difficult, even though I look at this uh, as this description of Jesus smashing people like they are pieces of pottery, am I comfortable with that? Am I caused to fear God? Am I caused to give him my life? Am I caused to draw to him and kiss him because I don't want to be his enemy, but I want to be his servant? Fifth Avenue, if we grasp hold of what it means to fear the Lord, if we grasp hold of this King, King Jesus coming back, and we'll judge those who have feared him and those who have not, those who have trusted him as king and those who have not, then it's going to change radically what we do with our lives. Our lives are going to cease to be, unco- uh, cease to be comfortable. And we are going to push ourselves to become more uncomfortable. We're going to go out into this neighborhood and to this town, and we're going to share the gospel. Because rather than fearing the reaction of man, we fear God. We're going to open our Bibles and rather than treating it just as a, as a nice thought for the day, we're going to wrestle with it in the spirit of God and say, God, what is this calling me to do? How is this causing me to see who you are and how I need to change? If we fear God, it's going to change the way we pray. Because the way we're going to pray is going to be praying in the fear of the Lord. God, you've given me another day. I'm so grateful and rejoicing for that. Please give me my food. Please give me the things I need. But Lord, most of all, let me honor you with my life. Let me honor you with my life and let me serve you. God, what do you want me to do today? God, what do you need to change in me today? It's going to change the way we pray. It's going to change all of our actions. It's going to change our attitudes when we come back. Church is no longer going to be the place where we sit comfortably on a pew, but it's going to be like the headquarters for an army. For us all to be soldiers to go out there and fight the battle of the gospel out into a dying world. This is going to be our place of sanctuary and rebuilding. But our lives out there are going to be doing battle for King Jesus. If any of you here do not know Jesus this morning, I want you to know that every time I make the the challenge to come and know Jesus, it's not just walking down an aisle and saying a prayer, closing your eyes and raising a hand. It's saying I'm willing to lay down my life for this King. I'm willing to lay down my life for this king because I want to face him as my savior and not as my judge. I want to face him as my savior, not as my judge. And I'll live the rest of my days fearing him, obeying his word, and giving him all honor and praise because he is the king. Will you pray with me? Father, it can become so difficult 
when your words is more of an ouch than it is an amen. Father, when we are made and shifted to be uncomfortable by your word, when we ask ourselves, is my life a life that is fearing the Lord? Is my life a life that lives knowing that you could take me out at any second? Is my life lived with me being a living sacrifice, giving to you all of my heart, my soul, my body, my mind, my strength? Father, I thank you for that blessed refuge in King Jesus, that when I confess Jesus' name, when we confess Jesus' name, when we confess the sin that we have not feared you, that you do forgive us, and that we can hear along with the words that you've put in this psalm, that we are your children, because the blood of the Lamb has washed us white as snow. Father, let us not take grace for granted, but let it cause us to fear you all the more. Let us run towards you. Let us live our lives for you. Let us live our lives in the fear and trembling of King Jesus. Amen.